But the, the approach to value engineering that I take is rather than using the term value engineering, I started using the, the phrase smart value. Mm -hmm. Where is the smart value here? Where is the, the value that, that actually is a smart decision that, that makes life easier, that saves money in the long run? Uh, and, and it really requires some, some brain work to mm -hmm. be able to come up with those ideas. The interesting part about smart value is that when you start going in that direction, that conversation about just giving you a discount is out the window. Mm -hmm. but that We've left that in the dust because we're focused on coming up with innovative ideas mm -hmm. that, that will truly make the building a better product. Right, so basically you're saying, okay, this is how it was designed. Mm -hmm. Now using what I know and what I have, let's see what we can make smarter yes. about the, this design. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to The Critical Path with Mary and Jason, a podcast about business development, company culture, and loving the place you work just a little bit more. This is episode 76, and be really careful, be really thoughtful with this information because it is top secret. It's top secret information we're going to share. We're going to be talking about top secret value engineering tips, or VE for you construction nerds. I feel like we need like some spy music in here or something. Whoa. We went down Doctor that road Who. before. You yeah, were yeah. looking for, what, heist music? Oh, yeah. And that was, was a, a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're talking about value engineering today. Uh, this is a topic that everybody interacts with, and we're all kind of clumsy when we're, when we're doing it, because usually what it means is that we're kind of pressured by the owner to make the sale, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about a project I was working on, but uh, essentially the... we came up with a budget after the owner made all of the last minute changes and the owner said the budget's too high this project is dead in the water unless you can cut something like 10% off of the top that's a lot right 10% on on an already tightly budgeted job mm -hmm. uh, just coming out of the downturn is this how you ended up with no stairs in the budget <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> different project, different project. It, refer to uh, uh, bidding, is it a xenomorph for, for that information? <laughs> yeah, no, so we're talking about value engineering. So what do you think value engineering is? Uh, well, as I understand it, value engineering is when you have to cut money or you have to present the owner with options mm -hmm. on how they could save money because as the contractor you are the expert on the material you on should the, be on the issue yeah so if you know originally i thought i needed a what a cadillac mm -hmm. but you as the car dealer would know that i'm actually okay with like my grandma's oldsmobile <laughs> right right <laughs> well so the interesting part of the disconnect is that the owner will hire the architect. The architect isn't an expert in how all this stuff comes together. Uh, they, they know a lot typically about the materials, but they know far less about pricing or the real application of the materials. Right, so they aren't necessarily thinking, an architect isn't thinking when they design about what is the best value. They're thinking about what is beautiful or what is functional. Well, they are thinking about it, but because <laughs> because they're removed from from the situation, they're kind of one or two steps away from that, that product info. Uh, the, they're, away, they're pulled away from that practical level, common sense level. And this isn't to, to throw shade at architects, but it's just not their core discipline. Well, they're thinking about a lot of different things already. Yep. There are a lot of plates they have to keep in the air. So it's really important in order to, to 
reduce the need for for value engineering to keep your contractor close right out of the gate, mm-hmm. uh, really in early stages of the design because they can provide input and information about if we're kind of going off track with regard to budget. So having a contractor on early can be really valuable. Contractors make sure that you're talking to your owners about this, although owners can be skeptical and they want everybody to go through the hard bid process mm-hmm. uh, because they want to keep everybody honest. Right. Uh, so value engineering at its core though, is that it is intended to be a cost saving measure that, that oftentimes goes a little bit wrong. So it goes wrong in that the owner says, you need to VE a huge piece of this project out, but I don't want to lose any, any of the favorite stuff that I actually liked. Mm-hmm. I don't want to lose anything that I need, and I don't want to lose any durability. Mm-hmm. I just want it less. I want a better product for less money. Right, or at least the same <laughs> at least product. just as good. How can this be just as good, but I just pay a million dollars less for it? Right, and... and contractors will will oftentimes get defensive where you hear that and what you hear coming out of their mouth is they just want a discount. Mm -hmm. They're just looking for money and they want the same product for less money. So be careful. Don't just fold into this. Make sure that you you create a little bit of distance and help educate your customer about the power of value engineering. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So in value engineering, typically what will happen is the owner says they want money, uh, they want better value for the same product, mm-hmm. and ultimately they're looking to to cut or reduce or control costs. Well, and this is crazy because like I can't walk into like Walmart mm-hmm. and say, uh, you know, I like these TVs, but I want all the features of this expensive TV. And I want you to value engineer $100 off of this TV. But as as the, the price tag of things go up, the more potentially negotiation comes into play. Mm-hmm. So if you go into a car dealership and you're going to buy a $100,000 car, they typically have a little bit more room for movement. Right. If you're going to buy a $100 million house, they typically have more room for movement. Right. So... The, the larger scale that you get into here, uh, the, the more room for movement there is. And so many times the best practice of the owner is just to squeeze the contractor a little bit more mm-hmm. prior to giving them the job. Sweeten the deal. Sweeten the deal. That's <laughs> what we teach our kids, right? So understand that that's what's happening when the owner is, is putting that crush on you or, or the owner's rep is doing that because they have to justify their, their fee. Right. Uh, so it's important that when you're requested to, to go into value engineering process, you need to start asking a handful of questions of the owner and the architect, and you need to better understand what pieces are immovable, what pieces cannot be changed, and why. So who does the value engineering? Is this something that the project manager does? Yes. So typically between the, so the general contractor is oftentimes leading this effort where you have the PM and the superintendent and they're kind of putting their heads together, trying to come up with ways to reduce costs. Mm -hmm. You can just reach out to your subcontractors and say, hey, I need a 5% discount. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're then passing that squeeze on. So we don't ask subcontractors to value engineer their work? Oh, we absolutely do. But what we tend to get back is, are, are things that aren't very imaginative. Mm-hmm. They'll say, well, I'm not giving you a discount. 
Right. And they'll say, we could give you a crappier product. Right. Right. So here's a, a light fixture. You had a nice light fixture that has a long lifespan. Yep. Here is a, a knockoff mm-hmm. that has a, a quarter of the, the lifespan. Right. And you're probably going to have a bunch of product failure and it comes with no warranty. Right. Is that value engineering? Right. No. No, because no. they didn't, they actually just got less value for less money. Right. They just got a crappier product. Mm-hmm. So the, the trick to value engineering is really finding that, that path in the middle where you can provide a similar or superior product mm-hmm. for the same or less money. Right. But so then you're saying that normally most of the value engineering happens at the GC level, not at the subcontractor level. It, it is instigated at the GC level. Right. Right. So they are ultimately then responsible for figuring that out. So right. they go to their key subs and talk with them. But you will typically get a lack of of great ideas right. because you don't actually get value engineering you just get cutting yeah. yeah because ultimately they don't really want to deal with it yeah uh, they feel like they're being squeezed and they mm-hmm. feel like their their price is just being crushed down right and they're not interested in that it, right. it, they can take it as a personal slight but mm-hmm. I think when you start asking questions of the owner and the architect about which pieces are immovable, which pieces are kind of spirit elements of the project that mm-hmm. for one reason or another, it really has to be there. Then you get better informed about the the priorities of the project for them. Right. So for us, it's really important that we use this, this uh, security integration system because that's what all of our buildings are coded on and voila, right? So right. now you understand a little bit more about what their priorities are. Right. But the way that I look at, at value engineering is more of like a, a game or a, a mind puzzle mm-hmm. because there are answers there that that you can provide some great ideas, mm-hmm. but you just have to think a little bit more, think outside of the box. And so I use the, the analogy of if you were physically locked inside of a box, I know you're a little claustrophobic. <laughs> yes. Right? So... If you were actually locked inside of a wooden box, a wooden crate, the question is, what wouldn't you be willing to consider to get out of the box? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You just locked me in a box, so I can't think of any solutions. Yeah. I'm all oh, you're freaked just out. Up. Which is kind of what happens, yeah. right? Like we, once you're locked in the box, I think for you, you know, if you're locked in a box, then you're going to be like thinking of of solutions. Yeah. But if I'm locked in a box, I'm just going to curl up in a ball yeah. and wait for someone to get me out of the box, which seems like it's off to the side. But I mean, that's kind of what we do, right? right? So someone says cut money off your price you and now freeze. we're locked in a box. Yeah. So my approach is there's very little that I wouldn't consider doing to get out of the box. If I had to rely on my own ability to get out of it, mm-hmm. I'm going to consider really anything under the sun because mm-hmm. that's the last place that I want to be for the long term. You know, <laughs> you don't want to live in a box. No, no, no. So, <laughs> uh, so when we're faced with this type of challenge with value engineering, I'll get my team together, any of the, the key partners, whether it's architect or, or project engineers or key vendors, and have essentially a brainstorming session. Mm-hmm. where we throw stupid ideas out there. Yeah. So this is sort of like the power of stupid questions. Uh, we're, we're throwing not necessarily bad ideas out there, mm-hmm. but any ideas. Because typically, we regard stupid ideas or bad ideas as such, but some of those ideas can be our saving grace mm-hmm. in, in this practice. It's just that we haven't fully fleshed out those those ideas completely. 
So maybe some of those ideas that we throw out on the table actually have a ton of value or some insight inside of it uh, that that could really be game changing. So this is when it's like, well, here's a stupid idea. We could do it this way, we but could. that would involve us doing this whole other thing. And then someone goes, well, that whole other thing is actually not that hard to do. Right. We could do that. It's not a big deal. Right. Right. Not a big deal. And we go into, th- this is like the uh, example of, of the study that asked a gaggle of kindergartners, how many different uses for a paperclip mm-hmm. can you come up with? And on average, they came up with something like 30. Mm-hmm. per kid uh, of different ways that they could use a paperclip. And then they asked the same question of adults. And the adults came up with something like five, five ways we could use a paperclip. And one of the, the differences between the two is that, that what happens over time is that our thinking gets cemented. So mm-hmm. for the kindergartners, they were willing to consider, uh, is the paperclip made of jello? Is the paperclip 50 feet tall? Uh, all of these things that, that, that we as adults kind of start to rule out and, and limit our thinking, mm-hmm. if we can kind of get back to that, that open-minded way of approaching problems, we're going to get a lot more potential viable ideas in the process. That makes a lot of sense. So anytime that we come up with an idea and, and it seems like it's possible, even if it's a bad idea, mm-hmm. we want to run quick calculations. These are, these are what-if scenarios. Right. F- what would have to happen to make this work? Right. And, and so even if it has an added cost, but there's a saving somewhere else, let's run that total calculation. So we have this weird option A. Mm-hmm. And when we run the math, the math is kind of shocking mm-hmm. in what it tells us. And as we go through that process, we're identifying kind of scope by scope what are different things that we could do. And when we have the math alongside of it, we might want to dig a little bit deeper if we find that there is high potential value for savings if we were willing to move some of these pieces. Right. So we can have the notion, the the preconceived notion that the owner will not change this thing. Mm But when we take this, this proposition to, to them and we say, mm-hmm. we could save a million bucks if this piece could move. Right. Then that really changes the conversation because now they're listening. Yep. So. Well, and I think that makes a lot of sense why that first step at the beginning is figuring out right off the bat mm-hmm. which pieces they really don't want to move. Because then when you go to them with your suggestions, you say, okay, we can keep all of those things just like they are, mm-hmm. but let's talk about some of these things that we want to change. Mm-hmm. And I think just that that preamble will help you get a little bit more uh, ability to move. Well, and if you approach it, even if it's one of their darlings, mm-hmm. even if you're talking about taking away something that was important this to is them. This their, their water feature in the front lobby that's yeah. really important. Even if you go back to the owner and you understand that that water feature is really important to the owner, now you kind of have that information and you can say, I know this is something that's really important to you, but if we could change it to be, say, LED instead of incandescent or, or something along those lines, uh, then you can present it with that knowledge that this is special to them. And you can say, this is the magnitude of, of the savings that we could see. Mm-hmm. So that now you have that context of what's really important to them and, and you can present it such. Uh, whereas if you just kind of stumble through and you step all over the things that are really important to them without 
taking regard to those, right? they can get offended by that. Mm-hmm. And they would expect or assume that you knew that that was important, but well, we never talked about or it. Or they just start to feel defensive. Like mm-hmm. when the more that somebody plows over stuff that matters to you, the more you just start to feel kind of bruised by that interaction. I, I think, you know, ultimately it, it by asking that, that type of question, which mm-hmm. Which project components are the most important to you? Mm-hmm. It it flips the script. It changes the conversation because mm-hmm. many times that conversation is started with the the suggestion, the unspoken suggestion that you just give me a discount and then we just go forward. Right. You just give me money mm-hmm. and we go forward. <clears throat> so as the contractor, if you you change that perspective and you say, okay, we're here, we're working together, let's come up with some ideas. The way that you approach it, it's collaborative. You're working mm-hmm. together. Uh, you're trying to help them get to the end of the solution. Mm-hmm. And right out of the gate, you're you're not giving up dollars and cents. Right. Right. And this is not a, a I give you something for nothing. Right. Relationship. You're saying which things can we change? Which things should we change? Yeah. Which so, sets the the expectation that we're going to be changing things. Right. So another consideration to figure into your calculations are are what what is the total impact what what is the total implication if we move any of these things change products change installation methods what is the total impact on the building life cost mm-hmm. is there an increased or decreased maintenance cost does this require less maintenance or more maintenance uh, does it need to be serviced or replaced sooner or later mm-hmm. The numbers that you present, they don't have to be perfect, but if they're rough estimates and they're informed estimates, then you can provide a different product that even if it costs more today, and they intend on keeping the building for a long time, mm-hmm. and it decreases maintenance on that, that product for 100 years or 20 years, it makes a gigantic impact and provides full life cycle value to the whole project. Yeah, well, and I think that makes a lot of sense to, to think about it that way and look at it that way because I think it's easy as the, the person doing the building to just think of it as, you know, this is the part that I'm engaged with, so mm-hmm. this is the part that I'm worried about. Whereas to realize that, you know, for a certain kind of owner, those life costs, is that's something that really matters to them. So many folks are aware of this, but they don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about it. Commercial construction buildings are mostly built to last 100 years. So if you think about the duration of time that it takes to build initially, mm-hmm. that's 1% to 2% of the entire building life. Right. It's a small fraction of the total cost to maintain that thing. And remember that money gets more expensive over time. Mm-hmm. So as we go through inflation uh, and products become more expensive, this stuff becomes potentially uh, much more expensive as time goes forward to be able to keep up. Right. So investing now is actually a, a good choice and, and should be part of that, that consideration when we're thinking about VE options. So this is a little like the light fixtures that we put into our office, yeah. right? That even 
I think these were actually cheaper than they replacing were cheaper. the fluorescent ones. Yeah. These are LED fixtures. Yeah, they're all LED panels mm -hmm. that, are, they, that are dimmable. Mm -hmm. The idea that the building engineer doesn't have to just go around every single day replacing mm -hmm. light bulbs makes a big difference. Yeah, and so even if they were more expensive, you could see how it would make sense for buildings to, to elect mm -hmm. to go with that type of product right. uh, because the life is longer and the maintenance is zero. Yep. Right? They're virtually zero maintenance on that. So make sure that you're thinking about and talking about that total life cycle building cost. But the, the approach to value engineering that I take is rather than using the term value engineering, I started using the, the phrase smart value. Mm -hmm. Where is the smart value here? Where is the, the value that, that actually is a smart decision that, that makes life easier, that saves money in the long run, uh, and, and it really requires some, some brain work to mm -hmm. be able to come up with those ideas. The interesting part about smart value is that when you start going in that direction, that conversation about just giving you a discount is out the window. Mm -hmm. that, we've left that in the dust because we're focused on coming up with innovative ideas mm -hmm. that, that will truly make the building a better product. Right. So basically you're saying, okay, this is how it was designed. Mm -hmm. Now using what I know and what I have, let's see what we can make smarter yes. about the, this design. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important that, that we're thinking about the types of products that have been specified. Many times the architect will specify something that, that a salesperson pitched them on. Mm -hmm. And they just thought it was sexy. They thought it was cool. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, let's build with that. Yep. And there could be five other products on the market that would be better. Maybe they last longer. Maybe they have a lower maintenance cost. Mm -hmm. But the architect just wasn't aware of them. Right. So when you get closer to the people who install this stuff and the vendors uh, and, and your subcontractors, really ask questions about, are there other products that exist on the market that, that are a better fit, that provide better value, mm -hmm. easier to maintain, better life? Uh, are there other products altogether that we should be thinking about? Something mm -hmm. totally outside of the box. Uh, so in, in a project that I did, there was a bunch of this green screen stuff that was meant to carry... Uh, growth, vines and things like that. And vegetation. Vegetation. And they were called green walls. And there was a, a proprietary product that was spec'd. I went to the vendor to buy it out and he said, look, I just want my cut and I'm not moving my price at all. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. And this stuff was astronomical when you compare it to any other product on the market. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that product that he is gouging you for, mm -hmm. and you say, well, shoot, what if we just used like wires and we mount these ourselves? What mm -hmm. if we go to the decorative metals outfit and they fab something up quick mm -hmm. that, that would meet the need of the building mm -hmm. and we don't have to go through this proprietary product. Right, and the sometimes the pr proprietary product doesn't have any real benefit. Right, it's just, it, it has kind of that flashy factor of, mm -hmm. of having nice brochures yep. that were dropped off in the architect's desk. Right. Uh, personally, it felt really good to not buy that person's product mm -hmm. because he was salty about it. So <laughs> that's just me. But anyway, uh, we also want to be thinking about things like economy of scale. So if we're able to make things more efficient, if we're able to buy more widgets, more units, then many times we can get a lower cost. Mm -hmm. If there are certain assemblies on the building, and let's say it represents 5% of the outside of the building, as a comparison of, of that total exterior enclosure cost, we're going to pay through the nose for that little bit mm -hmm. per square foot. 
So it's not just about deleting material, but we want to think about are there other ways that we could make more of the same type of assembly mm -hmm. happen on this project. Right, so that if we buy more of them, we'll get a lower rate per widget. And the people who understand that best are the subcontractors, are the mm -hmm. vendors, and we should be asking those types of questions. Not just cut 10%, mm -hmm. but how could, we, how could we get some sort of economy of scale? Mm -hmm. uh, what changes would you make if you wanted to reduce the cost uh, overall on the project? Mm -hmm. What substitutions would you pitch without right. cutting value? Right, That is kind of the nature of smart value. So we were, what, I worked on Chihuly Garden and Glass, and this was an interesting one. So we built the, the project budget right after the owner had updated the design, and we were something like a million dollars over where they wanted it to be. And remember, this wasn't a product of anything we did. They just mm -hmm. completely updated the drawings. They made a bunch of changes, and then when they heard the price tag, yeah. they wanted it to be a million dollars yeah. less. So they said, if, if you don't change this, the project is dead in the water. Mm -hmm. If you don't provide a million dollars of value engineering, this project is dead. So we went back to our team, and we threw a bunch of ideas on the table, and we came up with something like, it was over $2 million of ideas mm -hmm. for how we could provide smart value to the project. Mm -hmm. And the, the goal was to not delete anything, mm -hmm. but simply change or shift or, or look for different types of products that would meet the needs. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we have one great example where they had this, this silver, so there was a, something like 400 linear feet of custom exterior fence. Mm -hmm. And it was meant to look like reeds, so kind of expensive to, to build all, mm -hmm. all custom. But the finish on it was electrostatic silver paint. So it looks like a spaceship or something. Mm -hmm. But it's very expensive to do. It's a very expensive uh, application like process. process. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, it's kind of uh, intensive in terms of controlling the area when you're doing it. So that had a, a premium price tag of something like $80,000 mm -hmm. on that coating all by itself. That's right. just the coating. Right. It's 80 grand. So we went to, to the fence uh, fabricator and we're talking through the process. And what we came up with was using, so swapping out that, the steel altogether for a product called Corten. And Corten steel is, uh, it's that, that rusty, brown steel that you've seen on bridges. It was designed for industrial usage. And the way that it works is that uh, you, you take the steel and it, it has no finish on it whatsoever. And the outside of it is actually engineered to intentionally rust. And that rust creates a protective coating, a, a crust around the outside of that steel to protect it for a hundred years. So then it doesn't just rust away to nothing. It's actually strong after you get the original kind of rust coating on it. Right. And and the cool part about it is that that because it was designed to rust, after it goes through that initial process of, of corrosion, mm -hmm. uh, it actually doesn't bleed. So mm -hmm. everyone's association with rusty steel is mm -hmm. that if you have clean concrete, it's going to bleed all you over the concrete. ruin your concrete. Right? And you get this washed out rust brown stain all over the place. It's called Indiana Driveway. Indiana Driveway. Yeah. <laughs> That's the finish have, name. Yeah, you may, have, you may have seen it if you're from the Midwest. <laughs> so we, we pitched that product and we said, 
here's an $80,000 savings that we can provide, and you don't have to maintain the finish. Mm -hmm. So what kind of maintenance does the electrostatic paint require? So if there are chips or if there are dings or or scuffs or abrasions or things like that. Which in a high traffic public area like Mm -hmm. the outside of Chihuly Garden and Glass, you're going to have that. Well, so you'd have to pay to touch it up, but then you have the the issue with with matching the color. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you're going to have to actually repaint it. Right. Right. That that is not a forever finish. It's a long, a long life finish, mm-hmm. but not a forever finish. And you've got all of this vegetation growing all around it, yeah. so that repainting it would be a real nightmare. So the the magic there was that we actually deleted something. We changed the finish on something, gave the owner eighty thousand dollars in savings, mm-hmm. and actually ended up giving them a better product. And the coolest part was that Dale Chihuly loved the the rusted finish mm-hmm. far more than, than he they liked, liked that like chrome spaceship look yeah absolutely yeah. because they wanted it to fall in the background so they could see the art right so the more that you understand what their motivation is the better that you can engineer your ideas yep. for saving money well and i think that's such a good point because you look at that shiny finish and it would be easy to make the assumption, well, they like the shiny finish. The so. architect did. Right. Yeah. But, but I mean, I'm sure that Dale Chihuly saw it and said it was okay. Did not. Did not. Had no. never seen it. Nope. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, but you hear what I'm saying, that you would make the assumption mm-hmm. that if the client liked a shiny finish, that they would never go for a rusty finish. Right. And it could be that they see that and they never knew that was an option. Yeah. And they actually like it much better. Oh, yeah. So we often make assumptions that people will, will reject things and once we present it, it's actually a better solution. Yeah, that it has to be exactly as drawn. Right. And that's why we want to, want to understand what those uh, darling items are, the mm-hmm. things that are important to them. So we want to be thinking about what are the creative solutions that we can come up with. After we've evaluated any of the options that are kind of out of the box uh, different thinking, then when we're going through value engineering, we can think about cutting scope or cutting quantity. Mm-hmm. So an example of this is uh, many times the owners will say, I want full wall bathroom tile. Mm-hmm. I want tile from wall to wall, from floor to ceiling. Uh, I want it grouted this way. I want lots of detail in it. One one way that you can approach that that process is you can say, well, if we reduce the square footage to the code required minimum, then Mm -hmm. this is the potential savings. Or if we reduce it to this height, this Mm -hmm. is the potential savings. So basically then at that point, we're just running the tile up half of the wall and then Mm -hmm. having, you know, whatever regular wall finish above that. Yeah, so we still have the functional performance that we need per code Mm -hmm. and in order to support maintenance. So we're checking all of those boxes. So when you reduce the tile on the floor to code, then what does that mean? Reduce the tile on the wall. Oh, so not the... The floor still is wall to wall. It's up the wall is the only thing we're reducing. So is there code that says we have to go up the wall a certain amount? Uh, Yeah. So anytime that you're working with urinals or around toilets, Mm. then there's a a tile uh, solid surface requirement. To keep it from being like a a health violation, basically. Yeah, Yeah. for for cleanliness and maintenance. So so you can reduce some of those things. I'm used to ladies' rooms where we actually behave ourselves in the bathroom, (laughs) so we don't have those concerns. But but you'll see a lot of the places where owners (laughs) want tile all over these these walls sure a tile looks nice and seems nice sure and but in this phase after we've kind of got through our out-of-the-box thinking we want to go mm-hmm. through the process of thinking about okay kind of mechanically how can we simplify this scope so that we still get the performance that we need without necessarily uh, mm-hmm. being in breach of code right yep 
that makes sense. Right. So we want to make sure we get through that process and and we can separate all of these ideas in those types of categories mm-hmm. so that we can say the, the first category would be the smart value area. Right. This uh, is how we can make the project smarter. Yep. And, and be thinking about the full life of the building cost and the yep. maintenance cost. Mm-hmm. And then in the next kind of lower value category, mm-hmm. we're kind of reducing scope. We're skinnying things up and trimming back to code required. Right. Components. So here's where you have an option. You have two options, mm-hmm. either tile all the way up the wall and yep. here's how much it costs or tile to code and here's how much it costs. Yep. And, and in this phase, we want to make sure that we're presenting uh, clear places where some of the, the owner selections are especially expensive. Mm-hmm. Do they really understand that this light fixture is $10,000? Right. Do they really understand that, that we have a light fixture every two feet when we need one every 10 foot? Right. So this is using your knowledge as a contractor to kind of see the places where it's excessive. Mm-hmm. The design is excessive. Yep. And at least let them know that. And then if they look at that and say, no, I really want it every two feet, now maybe they're going to be a little more likely to take the cost of that. I worked on a project where we had probably three times the steel tonnage that was required on the building. Mm-hmm. We could have built three buildings for the, the weight of steel that we had in that building. Uh, but that was what the designers wanted. They liked the aesthetics of it. There was a lot of it that was exposed. Uh, and so when you inform the owner, we could totally skinny these things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't decrease the safety factor of this building at all. Right. Then you're pre- presenting that information uh, so that they understand the, the building concepts better mm-hmm. than they did when they began. Because typically the owners, they have the money, they're spending the money, but they oftentimes don't understand the products as well as you do or as your subs do. Right. So then anytime that they're spending more money than they need to, mm-hmm. on the one hand, they could say, well, no, I don't care about that at all. Let's mm-hmm. just spend what we need to. Yep. Or then if they look at that cost and they look at that, that thing that they have and they want all that steel because they like all that steel, then it feels like it's easier to justify that yeah. cost now that they, they chose it. And then the last step that we take, which is oftentimes contractors first step, is evaluating, is there a place where we can cut profit? Is there a mm-hmm. place where we're just going to cut? And that is my last option. Mm-hmm. But essentially, if, if you've gone through all of those steps and you still need to to cut and mm-hmm. the owner's not willing to cut then that is the phase where you start just to talk dollars yep but if we're going to talk dollars i like to put that right out on the table mm-hmm. so we've gone through process a we've gone through process b we've presented these options and you've declined mm-hmm. do you just want me to give you money do you want do you just mm-hmm. want this for less money is that the conversation that we're having, mm-hmm. it's important that you put that out on the table and just have a straight conversation about it so that, that we can get right to what is it, what is it going to take to get you in this car? <laughs> right? It's right. just very direct, very to the point. Uh, we've, we've shown that we've put our best foot forward. We've mm-hmm. saved them uh, or given them the opportunity to save mm-hmm. a ton of money without cutting value. And this is where we're left. What is it going to take to get you in this car? Right. right. And then there's just a math equation there of, you know, if that means the project isn't going to go forward, how yeah. much money are we going to lose from that? Mm-hmm. And is it worth losing some profit in order to do this work? Right. So I, I always prefer to to push that conversation off to late in the game because then we've developed our reputation. We've developed mm-hmm. the relationship. We've kind of built some bond mm-hmm. there. 
And for any of the revisions that, that we're going to be putting into effect, we want to make sure that the owner or the architect actually makes those design changes. Mm -hmm. So if we change product, if we change assemblies or material, make sure that the drawings get updated so that your contract includes that. If for whatever reason that doesn't happen, be mm -hmm. sure that you use a substitution request form for any of those significant changes. Because if we've had the conversation and you swap the material out, you still need to go through the process of completing that substitution request form. It typically shows up in the spec book, and if it's not in the spec book, be sure to put in that formal request to the architect or owner asking if there is a formal process. Right, because it's really important that we have this all reflected in the contract documents. Absolutely. So those are my top secret value engineering tips. They're really secret. So don't tell anyone, don't what, tell you've, anyone. what you've heard here. <laughs> uh, lots, of, lots of smart value packed into a tidy episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. So if you like this, love it, want to share it, please do so. Uh, Give us a thumbs up on Yelp. I think we show up on Yelp. We're not on Yelp. The podcast, believe it or not, is not on Yelp. <laughs> Yelp doesn't have a podcast section that I'm aware of. Although I did see that we have all five-star ratings on iTunes, mm. which is pretty good. So go give us five or six stars on iTunes. Not an option. Uh, <laughs> if if you want, if you have uh, young field leaders or, or project managers, project engineers who are, who are gunning for... Uh, promotion who feel like they would be a good fit we have our foreman basic training program and pm basic training program both starting in march yeah, those are filling up so go ahead and check out the website at arcadewayfinding.com you can see the foreman basic and pm basic offerings and the schedule and pricing and all that good stuff yep lots of good stuff going on there and we have our build the circle scholarship which We've been talking about more and more, and we actually just got our first scholarship or our first sponsorship yep. filled. Yep. So the first sponsorship from from NAWIC, a National Association of Women in Construction, uh, and we have that spot already filled, identified and filled. So we're really excited to to meet that candidate, uh, and we are off to the races. So if you want to know more about Build the Circle and you want to help make our world more equitable and more fair, check out build-the-circle.com. Yeah, well, and not just more equitable and fair, but a stronger construction industry for everyone because we'll have lots of smart people that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah, different backgrounds create different ideas. Absolutely, and better problem solving. There we go. So more on Build the Circle is coming soon. Watch for it. Watch for it. Whatever stupid <laughs> top secret. This episode's top secret. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever stupid stuff. You know? Keep it stupid. Keep, Keep it, it stupid, people. Keep it stupid. Hi, and welcome to Keep It Stupid with Arcade. <laughs> Keeping it stupid. Keeping it stupid for three years. For 76 episodes. 76 years. Why not? That's not a thing. Watch for it. I have not been on this earth for 76 years. Thank you feels that way though sometimes well i mean 2020 feels mm. like it was 76 years alone well, i think it felt like at least five years for everybody it's true at least at least <laughs>